We're in 1 Samuel chapter 28, if you want to be turning there. First Samuel 28 on the, on the outset is just a screwy passage. It's a fun passage. It's a passage that Christy reminded me that I've liked. I remember doing an exegetical paper on it in school. Uh, I think I've actually, I checked and I preached on this passage here before I was pastor, uh, November of 2012, so I'm sure all of you remember it. <laughs> of course. Um, I've liked it for fun reasons, but I don't know if it's just me or if it's a common error for 21st century Western thinkers to be thrown off in the wrong direction on what's, on things going on in here. Because this passage has some unexpected taboo things. Perhaps we're taken so back by a witch and an undead Samuel that we lose track of likely what some of the author's greater points and intentions are in his writing for this chapter. First of all, I do believe he is telling us actual historical events, so we can't begrudge him, if the author is a him, of anything he writes, but he does write with a purpose, and I believe the Holy Spirit and Jesus, the Word who's become flesh, and he has called himself the Word who's become flesh, has written this for a great purpose. So I invite you to stand in honor of reading 1 Samuel 28. If you're able to stand, we're going to read the all 25 verses together. 1 Samuel 28. <clears throat> we read, At that time the Philistines gathered their military units into one army to fight against Israel. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> to fight against Israel. So Achish said to David, you know, of course, that you and your men must march out in the army with me, Achish being a Philistine commander, David being in Philistia right now. David replied to Achish, Good, you will find out what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very very well, I will appoint you as my permanent bodyguard. By this time, Samuel had died. All Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his city, and Saul had removed the mediums and spirit." spiritists from the land. The Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid and his heart pounded. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. Saul then said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium so I can go and consult her. The servants replied, there is a woman at Endor who is a medium. Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes, and he set out with two of his men. They came to the woman at night, and Saul said, consult a spirit for me. Bring up for me the one I tell you. But the woman said to him, you surely know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you setting a trap for me to get me killed? Then Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you from this. Who is it that you want me to bring up for you? The woman asked. Bring up Samuel for me, he answered. When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed, and then she asked Saul, Why did you deceive me? You are Saul. But the king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth, the woman answered. 
Then Saul asked her, What does he look like? An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up, Samuel asked Saul. I'm in serious trouble, replied Saul. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what I should do. Samuel answered, Since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. You did not obey the Lord and did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, and the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell flat on the ground. He was terrified by Samuel's words and also was weak because he had not eaten anything all day and all night. The woman came, the woman came over to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said to him, Look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and I did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant. Let me serve some food in front of you. Eat, and it will give you strength so you can go on your way. He refused, saying, I won't eat. But when his servants and the woman urged him, he listened to them. He got up off the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf at her home, and she quickly slaughtered it. She also took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread. She served it to Saul and his servants, and they ate. Afterward, they got up and left that night. Let's pray. Father, we come to a very interesting story in your word. We trust, Holy Spirit, that you are the one who wrote these words, that you wanted to, us to see these events, generations of people who believe in you to see these events. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take these words and apply it to our hearts and minds so that we might better serve you, fear you, love you, obey you. We ask that you would be the one speaking and not I. We ask and pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. First Samuel 28 opens with this reality that Saul is as good as dead. And the prophet he was once friends with is dead. If you weren't here last week, King Saul had met the should-be King David one more time. And one more time, David had opportunity to put an end to Saul's reign of terror. Saul's been chasing David down, and collateral damage has happened. Saul's tried to kill David, David's friends, a whole city of priests was burnt to the ground. Saul's strained his relationship with his kids, namely Jonathan, his son, and his daughter Michael, that's David's used-to-be wife. David had one opportunity to kill Saul and chose mercy. That was in a cave where no one would really even see, and he had plenty of, he just was right there. He had this second opportunity, and he chose mercy again. But then he also chose, and I argued last week it was a bad move on his part, to leave Israel and go to Philistia, Israel's enemies, hoping that Saul wouldn't follow and still continue to try and kill him. And even though that that job's worked, David is basically a mercenary, 
He and his family and his followers have been deeded a city in Philistia called Ziklag. Coincidentally, Ziklag was historically reserved for the tribe of Judah, which is David, David is a part of. And now we read in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, At that time, the Philistines gathered their military units into one army to fight against Israel. Uh, the Philistines were usually organized by five capital, uh, I guess you would say city-states, and it says that all five of them are saying, we got to get together and we got to get Israel. That's implied in the Hebrew, right? No. So Achish, the ruler of the city of Gath, and that's who David kind of sold himself to as a mercenary, said to David, you know, of course, that you and your men must march out in the army with me. This is kind of a hard spot for David. He wanted to get away from Israel because he didn't want to face Saul, but he doesn't hate Israel. He intends to rule it someday, actually. And in fact, unbeknownst to Achish in the last chapter, David had been warring against tribes that Joshua was supposed to be rid of when he first conquered the promised land years and years and years and years prior. But now they're going to war, and Achish exercises being ruler over David and says, we're headed to war against Israel, I expect you to fight Saul. Or fight Israel, period, too. But if David ever faces Saul, David has said several times he will never lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. So we know he's in a tough spot. We know what his his ideas are, are about that situation. David replied to Achish, Good, you will find out what your servant can do. And if you say that sounds kind of vague, that's the point. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will appoint you as my permanent bodyguard. And this is actually a translation of an idiom. And I want you to see the actual words because they're pretty ironic. Achish of Gath, remember who else was from Gath? Goliath tells David, therefore, I will make thee keeper of my head forever. And it's ironic because David quite literally kept Goliath's head for a moment. So this is what Achish is saying, kind of ironically. We'll skip verse three for a second, and we'll find that on the other end of Saul, other end, Saul is preparing, verse four, the Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem, so gathered all, all Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. This is likely a Mount Gilboa, a place where Saul can see the gathering Philistines, much how a ship captain might see higher and higher seas and darker and darker clouds. But this isn't the only dreariness Israel and Saul has for the setting of a dark night. We find some other information that the author gives us, which will fill us in as to a few whys this chapter brings up. Verse 3. By this time Samuel had died, all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his city. We were told this in 1 Samuel 25, and it kind of set the stage for that chapter to show how was David going to fare without Samuel alive. And now it seems the author wants to share that fact again in consideration of Saul. How is Saul faring without Samuel? Of course, Saul has been faring without Samuel in a self-inflicted sense, for some time, Saul has slowly backed away from Samuel after Samuel revealed that Saul's kingdom had been torn away from him. See, it's interesting when Samuel said something he didn't like, well, Saul didn't want anything to do with him. Have you ever been there? 
I'll be the first to admit I've been there with God, with godly counsel and friends. You ever get sin pointed out for you? That's really helpful. You ever receive strong criticism? You ever get corrected or maybe not even corrected, but but someone points out something that you had strong convictions about and they challenge you? See, I'm quick to say, whatever, I don't need that. I got my mind made up. Don't confuse me with any of those potential facts type stuff. You've disobeyed God, Saul, and, and this disobedience was costly. It cost you the kingdom. Oh yeah, well I'm done with you. I'm the king. And Saul cuts off Samuel. Until now. Until Saul is as good as dead. He's facing the Philistines. David, the guy who usually has been fighting Israel's battles, is in the Philistine army now. Since Saul ran David out of Israel, Samuel, who at one point in time been been the prophet for Saul, is dead. The only other legitimate prophet we know of, a guy named Gad, is with David too. Saul had burnt a city of the priests of Yahweh to the ground a few chapters back, believing them to be co-conspiring with David to overthrow Saul's throne. Saul is afraid, he is alone, and he is as good as dead. And before we go on, I want you to know that this is the image we get of us prior to Christ. Paul wastes no words, pulls no punches in his letters describing the sad, sordid case of affairs for us without Christ. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath. Dead. Incapable of anything else. Fleshly desire, pursue. Tantalizing thought, let's do that. As far as the things of God, Paul would say in Romans that the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Unable. It it cannot. And we're going to see that in Saul again before the day is done. So Saul is as good as dead, so he's going to wake the dead. Makes sense in Saul's mind. We read the second half of verse 3. It says, And Saul had removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. Deuteronomy 18.14, in case if you don't know these verses exist in your Bible, says, Though these nations you are about to drive out listen to fortune tellers and diviners, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do this. Leviticus 20 verse 6 says, Whoever turns to mediums or spirits and prostitutes himself with them, I will turn against that person and cut him off from his people. So not that it should need saying. Nevertheless, Saul had instituted this policy for good reason. God forbids it. He straight up forbids it. But Saul's already cut off from God, so apparently he's not listening to the warning. In Leviticus 20, verse 6, we move to verse 5. We see when Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid and his heart pounded. Again, as I laid out, he's already run out Israel's greatest defender, David. He's run out all of the priests and prophets, which is why in verse 6 we read, 
He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. In dreams. You know, the book of Samuel kind of opens up with a dream happening for Samuel the prophet. So that's one way that God speaks. Or the Urim. And all of you know what Urim is, so I'm just kidding. Which were, these were divination stones. And they were apparently acceptable by God in that time. Some have suggested two stones, maybe one for a positive, one for a negative. We don't know what they were or how a user would use them, how answers were selected. It's likely no answer could be given here from such stones because they're probably with the priest who was with David in Philistia right now. And furthermore, concerning this practice, if it's not apparent, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, we have a relationship with the Holy Spirit that those in the Old Testament lacked. We have God with us, giving us direction, counsel, and making known His will to those who seek Him. So there's no need to find, is there any Urim and Thummim? Do they sell them at Walmart? Where can I get some? When they were acceptable means, Saul is not hearing by them right here, or he's not hearing by the prophets. That's what happens when you actually run them out of Israel. They can't talk to you. Verse 7, Saul then said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium so I can go and consult her. Now, before we say, rather self-righteously, of course, of course that's what Saul would do, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, and I want to ask, have you ever felt like God was silent? Have you ever felt like God was just not talking? Your, your scripture reading is bland. Your prayer's life feels 100% one-sided. The pastor never makes sense, which is not hard if you have me, I know. But Conversations with loved ones and other Christians just leave you feeling empty. And has it ever felt silent to you at a time when you really needed Him? There is a pressing decision you have to make and you've got no clarity on the matter. There's this relationship that's going sour and it's going from sour to worse and and God's given you no direction how to proceed. There's this horrific, horrible situation unraveling and God's given no peace and no wisdom about the situation. This is where Saul is at. He is as good as dead. The Philistines seemed poised and in fact will overtake Israel. And King Saul, the first king of a fledgling monarchy, is not turning out to be a George Washington. He's a James Buchanan, the last president before the Civil War. He's a failure. He's on the verge of disaster and he's done what we should all do, right? He's he's pursued God in, in every avenue given him. He's trying, but he's not hearing. He's... Seeking, but he's not finding. He's asking and knocking, but the door isn't opening. By golly though, Saul's going to get God's ear. That's his thoughts, even if he has to raise a dead man to do it. His servants replied, There is a woman at Endor who is a medium. Interesting how Johnny on the spot, Saul's advisors seem to be about the whereabouts of forbidden people in the kingdom. There isn't, this, this isn't too surprising though, as, as Endor, according to Joshua 17, 11, and 12, was home to some stubborn, unruly Canaanites who never left. So likely they maintained their practices underground, and apparently as this woman is here, and maybe the government's turned a blind eye. Verse 8, Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes and set out with two of his men. Now to head to Endor, 
It was four miles northeast of Shunem, which is where uh, the Philistines are gathered. So, a trek in which Saul is likely going behind enemy lines to get there. He's donning a disguise. He's taking two men, probably to be more inconspicuous instead of taking the 3,000 he goes to find David with. But he's also more vulnerable. And he apparently makes it without incident as we go on. It says they came to the woman at night. You know, evil things like this happening at night seems to be something that's persisted across all cultures and ages. Evil likes the dark. And Saul said, Consult a spirit for me. Bring up the one I tell you. We 21st century Westerners probably have some questions. And we'll continue to have questions as this unravels. I, however, am going to take a rather original and unique approach to this passage. I'm just going to read the passage as is. And I'm not going to assume that I should take whatever's about to happen any different than the way it's presented. Does Saul believe in what he's doing here? Apparently. Does God allow or permit it? No, we've already read that. But we always read about sinners sinning in the Bible, because that's what sinners do. Verse 9, But the woman said to him, You surely know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you setting a trap for me to get me killed? Now, some have wondered if right here and now the medium has seen through Saul's disguise, <laughs> or she could be filling out her potential client <laughs> the way she might fill out anybody. Could this be an agent of the kingdom doing a sting? Is he here to actually just report me? Who knows? And then verse 10 says, Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you from this says the disobedient king rejected by the Lord, the same Lord who forbids this very practice. Smart. Verse 11, Who is it that you want me to bring up for you? The woman asked. Bring up Samuel for me, he answered. So if, if God's not going to speak to Saul, Saul's going to find whatever way he can to speak to God. It's interesting that Saul didn't find a prophet or a priest in his land, anyone to speak to him. Again, he's likely alienated everyone. Is there not even any representative of Yahweh that he could even turn to? I'm thinking Saul knows that Samuel certainly had the ear of the Lord, and so by golly, he's going to ask a spiritist to bring up the dead prophet who once spoke to him before he turns to a living prophet who has reason to hate Saul or hurt Saul. Now, if you want both sides of the following, this is what I had to print off and put in your bulletin, because I just didn't want to take up all your time today, only most of it. So, I firmly believe, personally, my personal opinion is that this is Samuel who comes up. And I'll show you why as I go through the text. However, there are some people, and you might be among them, who believe this isn't Samuel, this is a... And the common explanation is that this is actually a, a demon, an imposter, since God forbids this sort of practice. It was clear and evident in the New Covenant, you know, that murdering God in the flesh when he came as Jesus is not advisable or without consequence. Nevertheless, it was permitted by those who desired to do it. And God used that to save the world. So likewise, I believe, yeah, you, I, saw nobody should use the occult to bring up the dead. But whenever God desires to send someone like Samuel, why not? 
Now I know there are questions. Um, why didn't God meet with Saul in the permissible ways when he sought him? And I'll answer all the objections if you're curious personally, but for now my only goal in preaching is how I see it. And yes, maybe convince some of you who don't believe this is Samuel to see it my way. That's, but I have the pulpit so I can do that. <laughs> The first thing we note right off the bat here in verse 12, though, is that when the woman saw Samuel, she screamed. Then she asked Saul, why did you deceive me? You are Saul. She wasn't expecting this, is what this tells me. She may have been expecting a demon or just her usual parlor tricks. But perhaps she senses that this is indeed Samuel, the prophet of God, a gigantic figure in Israel by this time. And so then she suspects and knows that this is Saul who is with her. Verse 13, but the king, interestingly the only time in this chapter at all where Saul is identified as the king, said to her, don't be afraid, what do you see? I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth, the woman answered. This phrase, spirit form, is actually the plural form of the word Elohim. And if you know any Hebrew, Elohim is like the generic word for God. So we have Yahweh, which is kind of God's personal name, and then we have Adonai, which is like our, our idea of master or lord. Elohim is used in the Bible to refer kind of to God generally, as a, like the word in, is, is in Genesis. God made the earth, God did this. God, that word is Elohim the whole time. So, But also, the Hebrew used the word in sentences referring to false gods, because it's, again, the generic term for God. There are other ancient Near Eastern texts that, that is, texts from the culture of the Hebrews and surrounding culture, they use this term Elohim to refer to the undead. Then Saul asked her, What does he look like? An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now, this just shows you how much I read the Bible, but it didn't occur to me till now, as in, that's a weird... He's wearing a robe. It's like, he he has a party hat on. I mean, he's wearing a robe. Saul, then Saul knew that it was Samuel. Samuel's robe has been kind of actually a character of its own in this book. He received a robe from his mother as a young boy at the temple. His robe was torn by Saul when Saul heard the kingdom was torn from him. His robe, like Saul, has his robe of royalty. Samuel's robe is likely special in that it's the robe for prophets. Just as Saul's spear has kind of been a character on its own. You've heard about his spear several times in Samuel. He's always holding it right before he's going to spear someone. And then also David is perhaps known for his slingshot or his sword that he slew Goliath with. So Samuel seems to have his robe. And Saul, who no doubt spent a lot of time with Samuel before they split, knew it was Samuel. Also note that the author will be saying nothing different for this whole story. It seems as far as the author is concerned, this is Samuel. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Samuel asked Saul. I'm in serious trouble, replied Saul. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what I should do. wonder if you heard something in Saul's request. I'm, me, 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 I've, me, 
I. I've had those prayers, sad to say. I threw in a few necessary praises, a few required references to God, but it's really, I, me, me, I, me. You think maybe this is one of the reasons God had no intentions of answering him in the usual means? Because Saul has not changed. When he finally gets God's ear, here it is. I'm me, me, I'm. His religion is me-centered. His relationship with God is one-sided, and it's not infatuation on God, just on himself. What's brought him to this desperate search for the word of God is literally his circumstances being as good as dead. Don't let Saul fool you. While I've tried to get you to garner some sympathy for him, he's proving himself here, and he'll prove himself by the end of the chapter to not be too genuine about this whole God thing. He probably thinks he's genuine. The best way he knows how to be. But it's just not. And that's a good warning. What do you or I think about our relationship with God? And what's the reality? Are we fooled or deceived like Saul here? I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I'm saved. And and I'm here to tell you, if what sits at the heart of your religion with God is the fact that your butt is not frying in hell, and if that's your primary concern, find me one passage where Jesus and his disciples said, this is the primary reason you need to be saved. You won't find that passage. You'll find things like, lose your life for the sake of me and my gospel. You'll find things like, I bring life, and life abundantly. And that life is for here and now, not only later. You'll find things like, be saved from your sins and from this wicked generation. That's now, that stuff you and I need to be saved from now. Saul's interest is in God is self-interest, not God-interest. God's interested in a pure life, a full life, a whole life, and a life connected with God, not just your life getting by and not getting fried in the end. You hear the difference? If the author in this book isn't lying to us about who Samuel is, which I don't believe he is, because I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, Saul has literally wakened Samuel from the dead to sing him a pity party. I'm so sad, so I contacted you from the other side. I woke you from your slumber because I knew you would feel for me, brother. Samuel answered. And in this answer, he's going to name Yahweh by name seven times. I don't know if that's a subtle hint on whose side he's on, or if it's further verifying for us that this is indeed Samuel or not, but I find it interesting, and it's also a contrast to the seven instances that Saul just named himself. I, me, 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 I. First, Samuel says, Since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? I just want to pause here and say, the Lord has not been silent to Saul. The Lord has not been silent to Saul. But 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 Kevin, it says he sought him by dreams, by Urim, by prophets. But Saul has not sought the Lord by obedience. Saul has been silent to God. I wonder if in the in our bouts of silence, oh, God's not talking to me. I, I wonder if it's this. Let's go back to the last thing you did here. How did you respond to that? Right? Why should God speak to us if the things he does tell us go by unheeded? 
go by unanswered. He doesn't have to seek us. He's God. Well, where, where did I put Kevin? <laughs> and so if, we, if he speaks and we ignore and we disobey, we have no right to say he's silent because we're silent to him. The last time Saul has revered and paid homage to the robe of Samuel is when he tore a piece off and Samuel said, the Lord has torn your kingdom, you're rejected. There's a better king. To which Saul has never repented, never responded, never reacted in the way he should. He shouldn't even be on the throne now. And if he wasn't, and David was, I could guarantee you Israel wouldn't be in the critical state it's in in this passage right now. Though Saul might be fooled by his own pitiful state, it doesn't fool Samuel. Samuel says, The Lord has done exactly what He said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. You did not obey the Lord and did not carry out the burning anger against Amalek. You can see 1 Samuel 15 for that story. Therefore the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Now don't let this confuse you. Samuel is just generally speaking. Tomorrow you'll be with me as in dead. (laughs) That's the point of that statement. No longer among the land of the living, but like Samuel should be now, they'll be dead. (laughs) And the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. So how about this? I wish the Lord would just answer me when take a lesson from Saul or take a lesson from Habakkuk who was a righteous man not hearing the Lord and he didn't like what he heard. (laughs) Maybe it's sometimes best we don't get an answer, right? I don't know about you. I don't really want to know the particulars about when or how I'll die. But here's what I think this is and what this could be because I'm just a painful believer in redemption. This is an opportunity for Saul. I think some of us read the Bible and we see people like Saul or like Judas and because we know their endings, we begin to think that they didn't even have a chance. I believe everyone has a chance until their final breath. Right here, Saul, he could say, and in fact, I'm surprised he didn't say to his men right then and there, go and find David. (laughs) The throne is his, right? It's a lousy kingdom now. I don't care how it'll look. Just give it up to him right now. We're on the brink of defeat from the Philistines, so now is as good a time as any. The kingdom is his. I repent. I believe Saul has a choice right here and now. He's already been told it's nothing new. Why are you waking me up, Saul? What's new between you and God? Nothing. You're still rejected as king. David should be king. By the way, though, you're coming my direction tomorrow. I'll talk to you more then. And sometimes those prophetic calls of judgment are also prophetic opportunities to repent. But we're going to see self-centered Saul, who can't spell Yahweh, let alone serve him, continue about his usual way here because he's a dead soul. First, immediately Saul fell flat on the ground. He was terrified by Samuel's words and also weak because he had not eaten anything all day and all night. Oh, look at that. He fasted. Sometimes I do that if I'm honest, though. Look, God, I'm going to do something out of the ordinary. I'm really serious about this. I'm not going to look at my social media for at least three minutes. I'm going to turn off the news. I'm really serious. But is your heart serious? 
And are your motivations pure, or are you like Saul here? I am so serious that if I have to sin to get you to speak, that's how serious I am. That's not serious. That's seriously messed up. That's not an understanding of who God is. And Saul is not even serious about this. He hears Samuel's judgment. He's terrified and weak. The woman came over to Saul and she saw that he was terrified and said to him, look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant. Let me set some food in front of you. Eat and it will give you strength so you can go on your way. But he refused, saying, I won't eat, right? I'm serious. I'm fasting. I can still outwit God. I can change his mind. I can let him see that I'm deserving of the kingdom and his protection. No food. But all it takes for Saul is, but when his servants and the woman urged him, he listened to them. He got up off the ground and sat on the bed. The woman took a fattened calf at her house and she quickly slaughtered it. She also took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread. This is easily a half-day process. She served it to Saul and his servants and they ate. And afterward, they got up and left that night. Here's the thing. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying he shouldn't have eaten. Then he would have been real serious. This is way down the line of what Saul shouldn't be doing. Saul shouldn't be talking to dead people. He shouldn't be going to a medium. He shouldn't be chasing David down in his spare time to spear him. He shouldn't be king, period. At the same time, when he heard of the kingdom being ripped from him, he heard a lot of things. One thing I want to make mention that is relevant. If Saul Saul had listened to Samuel then, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices, and let me just add, and fasting and being real persistent and being stubborn and being unrelenting as much as in obeying the Lord? But the point is, is look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Some of us, I think, can be real persistent and stubborn and we're so loud and we're unrelenting and shh, be quiet, Lord, I'm busy worshiping you. And Saul couldn't hear God over his own disobedience. That's the problem. See, we can pray, sing songs, read our scriptures, go about our day if everything is all, as if everything is alright, content with God's silence on Sundays and then act confused and innocent to perpetuate our fake righteousness on other days. I don't know what's wrong. I don't, I don't know why he won't speak to me. When we got junk back here to deal with. If there are wrongs you've never righted, God's not forgotten. If there are sins you've asked for forgiveness for but never sought to repent from, you think a little time has changed that? Maybe for you. What Samuel told him here at Endor may be old news, but it's not unchanged. Kevin, are you saying God holds a grudge? No, a grudge is when forgiveness has been sought and repentance has happened, but one party is still unforgiving. God and Saul here, this is still out in the open. And things like this can still be out in the open when we voice the words that others want to hear, but we never repent of. God looks at the heart. Kevin, you really think that was Samuel? I think the Bible is about Jesus. 
and a godly prophet who resurrects bringing omens of doom and punishment for those deserving souls points us to a better resurrection of a better prophet who brings blessings of peace and righteousness to undeserving souls. Saul approached the wrong resurrected guy. You say, but Jesus wasn't around yet. But God was. And He's a forgiving God. Saul could have repented, rejected his kingdom, taken whatever means necessary right then and there, and I believe he would have been forgiven because of a better resurrected prophet. Paul says in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as the mercy seat or the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Those are the sins of Saul or could have been. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. And what Saul should have done and what you and I should do if we're convicted in these moments is not double down on fasting. Not double down on Bible reading. We shouldn't double down on religiosity and and legalism. We should double down on obedience. We should seek forgiveness and repentance. We should feel sorry and change. And what Samuel could not do, but what the resurrected Jesus does do, is give us His Spirit and His power to change. Because the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. You hear that? That's the present here and now thing. That's not hell and heaven. You don't have to be dead in trespasses. You don't have to be constrained and chained to foolish passions. The Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead lives in you and He brings life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing how an examination of Scripture can make a bunch of self-righteous, prideful people humble and identifying with Saul at the end of the passage. Or maybe that's just me. And so I pray that it would do a work of grace and repentance in our hearts. I don't want to seek forgiveness and feel sorry and then go back to eat at the dumpster that I've been eating from whenever you've prepared a table. I want to seek for your forgiveness and then I also want to seek repentance. I want to seek your power to change. To not do the things I know I shouldn't do and to do the things I know are good. Please remove the blinders that the enemy constantly seems to throw at us, that the junk we crave now is a whole lot better than what you offer. Help us to realize that what you are offering is amazing. We don't have words to describe it. The peace and the joy and the love, all the fruits of the Spirit you give us are worth it. Father, you call us to deny ourselves each and every day. Deny ourselves each and every day. Help us to wake up each and every day and and ask what fleshly passions are trying to drive me 
do things that I know aren't right. How can I deny them, Lord, and do what you're calling me to do? You say it's by the same power that rose Jesus from the grave that lives in us. So Holy Spirit, we pray you would have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.